These are fun, off-the-cuff discussions on movies and streaming series, both new and old. Together, we'll attempt to bridge the gap between Hollywood Industry Insider and the casual viewer. This is Alec. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to the Cinema A to B Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinema A to B. And I'm ready to talk about this movie from 2003, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Ben, I know kind of we've just, well, I've recently seen it. I know you've seen it within the last year or so. How do you feel about this film? This thing sits probably right outside my top 10. Oh, wow. And I think Peter Weir is maybe the most underrated film director of the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. Because you, you go back through his catalog and it's, the thing is, he's not prolific. He's not made that many movies. And then now he's he's basically been retired since uh, 2010. This movie is tremendous and there's nothing else like it mm-hmm. in like the whole nautical genre. Like it's, it is unmatched. I don't even know what I can compare it to. I think, um, you know, tonally it's, it's probably got as much in common with something like band of brothers mm-hmm. as, as anything I can think of. Um, it doesn't have the quite the bravado as like a gladiator. And obviously mm-hmm. it's going to draw some comparisons with gladiator because of uh, Russell Crowe and Russell yeah. Crowe, but it, you'll see on IMDb, it sits, it's a 7.5. And the only reason is because, Every now and then somebody will watch it and thinks it's the most boring thing <laughs> that they've ever seen in their life. Okay. And that's really what it is. As, as Russell Crowe famously said when he responded to somebody, I think on Twitter, that was complaining about how dull this movie was. And he just ripped him a new one and said, this, no, this movie's for grownups. Yeah. This is, this is one of the finest movies I think he's ever made. And it's there to me, to me, man, there's not a big gap between this and gladiator. I know that might surprise some people hearing that it, the gap is narrow and there's days where I think this is either as good or if in some ways better, in some ways a better film than gladiator, but it is, it's a gro- it's a grown up movie made by a grown up for grown ups. And if you don't like it, I'm not saying that you've got bad taste, but I'm, I'm just saying this is like a really mature, like seafaring film. There's, there's pirates of the Caribbean for the masses. And then for us few, cause it didn't do well. There's master and commander, the far side of the world, maybe one of the longest film titles ever. Well, so because it is basically taking two of the books from the, uh, Jake Aubrey series, that is like 15 books or something like this. Like, the, and this is like book one and book 10 of that series. Now I'm going to, you know, to back you up, the Academy also thought this was a fantastic film. It had 10 Academy award nominations. Yeah. But it ran into one of a them movie. best picture and it won two of its 10. Cause the only problem was that it came out the same year as Lord of the Rings, the return of the King, which is in, in and of itself, an amazing, fantastic movie, but also built a little bit more towards the masses. I mean, it is something that transfixed a book series that no one thought could be 
done well. well and so it just happened to come out in bad you yeah know, the bad. other problem was with with and i'll speak to this briefly but the other problem with that whole thing was that the academy waited to award basically give academy awards for the lord of the rings films they waited till the third entry to do yeah. it yeah when they they could have easily spread them out and said oh no this you know this is deserves best director and this entry deserves best screenplay and no they just just waited till the 04 awards for movies that came out in 03 to just give almost everything to return of the king so that yeah this thing just ran up against a a monster but if you're billy boyd you're absolutely fantastic because you're in two movies in 2003 that both got over like double digit academy award nominations you know yeah so i mean you're you know Pippin in one film and you are the, uh, uh, what the guy, the navigator on, on, you know, in the other one who has a pretty, you have a pretty good part. So it's, uh, it's, it's a good year for him. It was a fantastic. Yeah. So it won. So it won the technical, some technical Mm -hmm. stuff because it won best sound editing and then it won best cinematography, which is completely justified. It's a, it is a breathtakingly beautiful film. Oh, Absolutely. It looks like a painting. Every frame looks like a painting. You know, you you have enemy warships coming out of the fog. It looks, Mm -hmm. it has a very painterly aesthetic to it. And the, the score, the film score on this is just next level stuff. Yeah. But what I love is the score doesn't come in till 12 and a half minutes into the movie. The first 12 and a half minutes of this movie, there is no music, but it's also kind of when they are in the fog and things are building up and it's kind of giving you that little like breakdown of what's happening. And it just makes everything a little bit more tense. And even the first bouts of action, the first shots fired happen before the music sounds. The only time the music sounds is when, when basically Russell Crowe goes on the offensive and he's like, all right, time to time to get into this time to go after this person. And that's when the music starts. And so it's it, I think it was a really obviously it was a deliberate choice, but it was a great choice because I think it gave a lot more weight and a lot more gravity to the situation that they were in and kind of brought you in. And then it was like, OK, now we're going forward. Now the music starts. And then from there you have music. And it's like you said, absolutely well done. Just really great. Yeah. And you'll find Peter Weir. It always has tremendous scores, classical scores in his film. Um, Dead Poets Society. I the, the score in the Truman Show is mm-hmm. tremendous. And I and I think the Truman Show is a fabulous piece of filmmaking. Um, I rem- like I think my introduction to Weir was actually in film school. They had us watch Gallipoli, mm. the mm-hmm. the World War One epic that he directed and so that was my first kind of foray into although i probably had seen dead poet society before that but yeah he he doesn't make a ton of films on i think he's done you know he's still he's Mm -hmm. still alive but i think he's retired i 13 year gap i highly doubt that he like just shows up and starts something in his 80s but this guy's as good as there is in my opinion i Everything's masterful. His direction, his 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 shot selection. I think I think he's particularly gifted with 
with ha- selection of film composers because his scores are always just very emotive. This thing always works for me on an emotional level. And that's the thing. Master and Commander is not, it's got tremendous action. In fact, I think it's got some of the most brutal naval mm-hmm. action that I've ever seen on screen, but you have to wait through sequences to get there. And this movie does, it goes, it, at times it feels massive and then it gets micro in a hurry. And if it feels, it feels really small and very intimate. And the, the reason I mentioned band of brothers is because that's really at, at its core. What this is about is a group of men, you know, King and country adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, this is kind of a, a peek into the world when, you still kind of could have an event an adventure. It's tough in 2023 to have like go on an adventure. Like it, yeah. it is, you know, most of the known worlds pretty much discovered, like, but the idea that you would be, you know, on this ship and that's, this is it. This is all there is. There's no other, there's no backup. They're not part of like a larger fleet at any point. There's completely on your own. And you're an older ship against, you know, newer ships out there. Oh yeah. He's completely outclassed, outgunned. Yes. Totally outgunned. And at this point, it's all it takes is your own strategy and your own tactical ability to win. Right. Because it's not the plane. It's the nope. pilot. It is the- <laughs> uh, yeah. I, so, uh, I'm going to go back on what you said of this is definitely far more a mature film. So I did watch this in the theaters when it came out in 2003. Mm-hmm, so did I. And I liked it, but I didn't love it. And that was the only time I saw it. And I didn't see it again. Like I, I owned the film. Like I, I either got it as a gift or I bought the film. And I had this idea that I really like this film, but I knew I really didn't like, and it's not that I didn't like it. It was more of kind of what you said. Like I felt it was slow. And I felt it was one of those moments of like, I should like this film. So I'm going to say I like this film, even though I didn't really in like this film because it was slow. Um, so I just watched it again for the second time. And I mean, it's been what, 20 years now since I've seen it. And I can tell you on the second viewing where I'm at now, this film was amazing, was absolutely what you said. This is definitely a mature film. I loved every moment of this. I felt every moment of this film, it was it definitely the characters felt so thought out, felt so the world was so well built. The pacing was so well done. Like it, I remember, you know, 20 years ago, me thinking this was a slow film. This wasn't a slow film. It was getting you to that point. So those moments of violence and those moments of terror actually hit well, and you were actually just as terrified or just as angry or just as sad when those moments hit. And it was, it, it, it just felt really, you know, really well done of this, this thought process of getting you to this point of this is a story well thought out, a story well told with visuals to back it up with, you know, everything else that makes a good movie added into it. And this, I I walked away going, wow, this really does deserve those 10 Academy Award nominations. And the last thing I can say, Ben, is this entire movie 
all I can think about is you and I need to learn string instruments and we just need to get together and just, you <laughs> know, when we're no, yeah, just jam out. That's, that's all I wanted to do. I was just like, and I, and I need a steward. That's exactly what I need. I need a steward yeah. who, by the way, is my favorite character in this entire film because everything he says is absolutely hilarious because it's all under his breath, just angry as all get out the entire time. You know, one of the many, many strengths of this film is the, incomparable chemistry between Russell Crowe and Paul mm. Bettany. Yeah. They just, Oh, they're like yin and yang. And you can't, you can't coach or teach this stuff. Like it's either there or it's not. And they are just tremendous together. And obviously they did a beautiful mind together mm. as well. This is I'd a, love to see them in more ago. stuff together. Yeah. Cause they just, the interplay between those two characters with actors of their caliber playing them is just a sight to behold. And I have to say, I think this movie has one of the best on-screen jokes ever. <laughs> the, the dinner table one? Yes, with the, with the, <laughs> with the weevil. <laughs> I mean, and the yeah. way everybody laughs at him and Betty just keeps it straight. Yeah. Like just, just sits there and like takes it. The acting is dictated by Crow and Bettany, and then everybody else rises to the occasion. It reminds me of Shawshank. There is not a flat note in the performances in anybody, even the no. kids yeah. that are in this movie are like spot on. Yeah. Everything feels like, like a real person. And so when they die and there is plenty of death in this movie and that, and that's one of the things I appreciate about it is it, it pulls no punches on how dangerous this all is. And that, that moment when that one sailor go, is overboard and that piece of wreckage is out and it's, but it's still tied, tied down to the rest of the ship and it's going to pull them under if a decision isn't made is just devastating, but that isn't like at the very beginning of the movie, you build up to that moment. And so you care about everybody at that point, including the guy that's in the water. Mm -hmm. And it's just devastating when, when crows just got to be like, no, we we're going to have to hack these ropes off and let this guy drown. Otherwise we're all dead. It's funny you mention that. Cause they did, they had the one character who got into the water was in a, a a scene not even like 10 minutes earlier getting, co you know, commandeered by Russell Crowe's character, by Aubrey, saying, great job, extra ra ration of uh, rum for you all or something. Yes. But you could see that interplay of how that whole scene gets cut of that kind of, you know, I, all I can say is that burden of command of, you know, Russell Crowe kind of wrestling with this of like, either I'm saving the hundred souls on my ship but killing this one guy, or I try to save this one guy and possibly lose everybody. And that's the thing they try. It's yeah. not like he, it's not like he immediately makes the decision to no. let him go. Like they, they give it pretty much everything they can to bring him back in. And it just isn't going to happen. And the longer they go, that piece is just going to drift out. And it's going to, it's going to capsize the ship. It is devastating. The movie, the movie's got the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. It is, it's an emotional roller coaster. In fact, it's pretty emotionally taxing if I'm if I'm honest. Like mm -hmm. I'm not wore out, but I'm like, you've been through it. You've been through it. You feel like they Weir's got this masterful way of making you feel like a unseen member of the crew. 
And that's why this film resonates with guys so much. I've seen articles that are like, don't understand why is this movie so popular? Because I guess a couple of years ago, it had some sort of resurgence among like millennial guys. Mm-hmm. We're all like having watch parties to watch Master and Commander. I've never <laughs> heard of such a thing. I mean, I've, Me. I've, I swear I'm usually by myself when I watch this, but it's because of the, it's the, it's the brotherhood. It's the kinship. Yeah. It's, it's relying on this guy next to you. I mean, you, you think they're fighting for king and country, but they're not. They're, they're serving alongside each other. It's the same thing with them, with any military. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, you have pride in your, your nation and your, but you, at the end of the day, you fight because you fight to preserve the person next to you and you hope that they're going to do the same thing for you. And that this movie does that really well. It humanizes naval conflict exceedingly well. And then you have that wonderful side narrative of Bettany basically being a contemporary of um, Darwin. Mm-hmm. with the, with his study of naturalist and all that. Yeah. It's, it's, mm-hmm. and it's beautifully done. And they actually, they actually shoot on location Yep, at the Galapagos. Yep. Yeah. The only thing they don't do is when they're actually catching the iguanas that's in like Baja, California, but the rest of it's all in the Galapagos islands, the Baja, the Baja. Um, but it, it's, it's fun. So kind of touching back on a couple different things, but uh, going back, I like how in that moment of cutting the mast is that they built into the character of Aubrey Russell Crowe's character grabs a hatchet and he is one of the people cutting the ropes. It's like it's one of those what what makes his crew follow him and call him Lucky Jack is that he's not going to ask you to do the tough thing without him also doing the tough thing. You know, I mean, he was the only one cutting the ropes, but he was definitely the first one to grab the ax and start cutting the ropes to, you know, as essentially doom that person. But it's that interplay between going back uh, to, but Paul Bettany's character and Russell Crowe's character, because Paul Bettany's basically almost a pacifist and very much not at all wanting, like doesn't, really care about duty, doesn't care about king and country kind of a situation is more just here because he's friends with Russell Crowe and probably looking for money. But going back to what you said about that dinner scene with the 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 fun moment, but it was one of those moments of like, they were talking about Lord Nelson right beforehand and Bettany's character basically like is kind of calling out Lord Nelson as being, you know, it's kind of subtle, but it kind of almost calling into character, you know, uh, calling Lord Nelson's character into question. And that's when Russell Crowe kind of jumps in with that, with that, that joke of kind of trying to deflate the situation. And I think what I really love this, this movie is it doesn't try to, the, the dialogue doesn't try to like hold your hand. It just says, we're going to talk how we talked that time. We're going to talk about things that you have no, know nothing about. You can just, you just need to sit back take it in and just go along for it. Cause we're not going to explain it to you, you know? And there's many things where I was just like, okay, I have no idea what we're talking about, but you know what? I'm, I'm in it. Let's do it. Let's go. You know, I'm looking up afterwards or not caring enough to look it up afterwards, but this is definitely not kind of, like you said, this is mature film where you just have to kind of pick up by what's being said and what's being done to kind of know kind of what's going on in the dialogue. Cause not all the dialogue is going to say, Oh, and we're going to do the gibbity spigot and the gibbity spigot does X, Y, and Z. It just is going to say it and move on. And I realized there's no such thing as a gibbity spigot on a boat, you know, <laughs> or a ship, excuse me, not a boat, but a ship. So this film does not exist. I'm convinced 
without Titanic. Oh, yeah. Because one for the whole kind of nautical naval thing and in the success, the box office success of Titanic, but then logistically the giant tank that they built in Baja mm. in Mexico that they shot the ship in, they reused for this and it gives it that authenticity that it would have lacked. And then sh and cause shooting on the water is like the worst. I mean, mm -hmm. it is, it's literally the worst thing ever. Steven Spielberg's notorious for talking about like he, he pretty much wanted to quit filmmaking after the jaws <laughs> after making jaws. Cause, and he swore, he swore he would never shoot on water again. Like for real, like wow. he would do anything he did after that. That was like water, bait. it was a set. Like they, they just, it was, a, it was a set with the, the flooded tank in the, you know, in the middle, he never. So this, this thing they built for a Titanic is kind of the best of both worlds because the water is in a more, it's right on the shoreline, but it's in a more controlled area. And so you can get that look of open ocean, but you're, you're right there by the land. You're not out on the water. Yeah. And so, and it's cause this film just feels otherworldly. Like it, it, there's a little bit of, I think there's a little bit of CGI in it for some sequences, but you can't really tell even in Oh three, like you can't, I can't tell like it, you know, it, the only giveaway for me sometimes is, is the kind of the reliance on closer up shots of the, of the boat where you don't see the waterline. That's just, that's a logistical thing they had to do because that boat's not really very rarely is it on open water. Well, so they did actually use, oh my goodness, what is it? The HMS Rose or something like that. Uh, they, they did actually use a ship for most of the water sequences. Um, and then they kind of rebuilt her in the, um, the tank and then also on a sound stage as well. Uh, so they did actually use a true rigging ship for most of those ships. And then also I know when um, a lot of the shots of them going around the horn, the, the, the cape or whatever, right. um, they actually sent the camera crew down because there was a, a rigging ship that was actually doing that kind of, I forget which one it was, but actually doing that journey. And so they sent sent the crew down to take these shots. And so a lot of that shot of the sea and the, the land and all that stuff is actually really the Cape, uh, you know, the, uh, the Cape of Good Horn, not Good Hope, Good Horn, the, just the horn. The Cape um, of Good Horn. <laughs> yeah. Because the Cape, Cape of Good horn? Hope is the it's one Cape in Cape horn, South right? Africa. Cape Horn. Yeah. Yeah. I think. South America. South America. Yeah. Cause good yeah. hope is South Africa. So. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But, but anyways, so they got some, some, some real stuff. So it, it's great that they did these location shoots or were able to do these things. So, um, they also fun fact, the <laughs> surprise was actually, um, at the battle. Um, oh my goodness. What is it? Of not Yorktown. Um, wherever the star spangled banner was, was created or was was written um oh my goodness not not south carolina so the actual boat the actual boat so the hms surprise like so that was a real boat so the stories about right you know written uh, by this guy are also are false or fictional but the boat itself is actually a real boat the hms surprise um but it was actually used in the revolutionary war so um baltimore yeah. harbor 
Golf. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Wow. Yeah. Sad that I, I pulled, I had to pull that up. I was, I was kind of curious. <laughs> we Fort, Fort failed. Fort McHen- yeah. Fort McHenry. Oh yeah. Cause we're history experts on the show, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Cause this is a, we've, we've decided to change cinema A to B into a history podcast. <laughs> history A to B. In which um, we just Google history. <laughs> just and- <laughs> Google history tell you. But so, so it's, it's these fun little nuggets, but there's just a lot that, this movie does so well that I just really, um, really just enjoyed. I just loved the character development between them. I love, like, like you said, I loved the interplay between Bettany and R- Russell Crowe is just the best parts of this movie. And it really is where the meat of the movie and what it questions so much, because there's a whole lot of questions of, you know, how far does duty take you? How far does for King and country take you? And at what point does that need to stop? And you need to question it, you know, um, or how much does it ask of you? Is that too much? You know, and it's, these are the questions that I didn't pick up 20 years ago. These are the things that I didn't, you not, not that I didn't care about, but I just wasn't mature enough to see or to enjoy. And now I'm looking at it from a whole different perspective of going, Oh my goodness, this is, there's a lot of depth to these conversations. There's a lot of depth to this movie that talks about. And then there's the steward who just absolutely grumbles about everything and makes me laugh every single time he's on screen. <laughs> it, like it has a surprising amount of humor in the film. It, it does have these good moments of levity, but they're, they're appropriate and mm-hmm. they, they feel authentic. The, you know, I was thinking about another movie that it's, it doesn't have the same kind of, questions about duty and honor and stuff but but it's another film older film um probably roughly 10 or 11 years older that that has this commitment to authenticity which is last of the mohicans Mm -hmm. and so and my thing is if if you if you've seen last the mohicans and you've not seen this my guess is you probably would enjoy this movie yeah because that's a movie for grown-ups as well with a with a tremendous score cinematography that's second to none and a commitment to authenticity for the era. Yeah. And so the, these films are like, I don't know if we're going to get another movie like this for a long time. Like, I don't even know how this got made. This certainly doesn't get made in 2023. Absolutely not. If it does, if it does, then it's going to be, the budget is going to be a shadow of this or, or this is going to be like, way dumbed down and turned into some series. And frankly, the, the source material probably would benefit from a series. Mm-hmm. I mean, that as many books as, as there is with the, with the whole Aubrey storyline, like this probably would be justified, but I don't know who, it, I don't know if enough people would watch it. And this was actually supposed to be, it was supposed to be multiple films that were going to go through that, but yeah. because it didn't do like, I think it was like a $150 million budget. And I think it only did $212 million domestically um, or maybe even worldwide. 211, so, 211 worldwide. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this it, is a, it, this is a bomb. It's another and, bomb. And, uh, yeah, hundred $150 million estimated budget did 93.9 oh in the U S and but Canada. Yeah, uh, absolutely does not get made nowadays. You don't, you're not going to put it. I mean, you're not even going to put $150 million of 2023 money towards a movie like this. There's absolutely no way. I mean, I think one of the driving, mo- driving things was this was peak Russell Crowe. I mean, you're a couple years at, you know, out, outside of gladiator. He's, 
you know, skyrocketed. You have him, you know, him kind of doing your movie. This gets this easily gets greenlit. But back when this is all based off the success from Gladiator. Mm hmm. Well, when, I think yeah, in Beautiful was, Mind, because he was rolling off of a um, Academy Award for that, didn't he? He won an Academy Award for that. He won, an, he won his Academy Award for Gladiator. He was nominated again for A Beautiful Mind in 01. Was that was the year that Denzel won for Training Day. So oh. it's it's sort of iffy whether he would have won back-to-back -back Oscars. So yeah, this is two years later, and he's got a, he had a really good run. I mean... Really good run. And this is kind of in the middle of it. Um, or near, maybe near the end, because he did Cinderella Man in, in 05, and then 310 to Yuma wasn't bad. American Gangster was good. And then it's then it's starting to decline. Like, the roles just aren't as good. Body of Lies, you know. Yeah. I mean, he still has it. It's just not... He he hit his moment there with because he did the the insider what before Gladiator, and then after Gladiator he did A Beautiful Mind, and then obviously this and that that was his kind of run of really became something. But yeah, he had some offset issues that I think probably turned some people away. He's still one of the best to do it, in my opinion. The um the gravitas, the charisma, he's definitely one of the best ever ever do it and certainly in in my lifetime and i and i grew up kind of my impressionable years of cinema he was the guy mm -hmm. when i'm a senior in high school he's doing gladiator and then so in college he's doing these other movies and this is yeah this is when i saw master and commander was um probably my junior year of college i went to the theater with probably with some friends i don't think i went by myself but and uh, really enjoyed it. But yeah, I, I probably did. I would, I definitely would say I liked it, but it has improved with age mm. yeah. with my age. Like, yeah. the, like you've said, like it's some of these movies just, you've got to, you got to give them a chance later as you mature and you go through different life experiences and you're not going to view them the same way. That's kind of the beautiful thing about cinema. These movies, you think they'd stay the same. They don't because, because you, you impact your own viewing impacts like what you take away. So if somebody hasn't seen this in a minute and by a minute, I mean like 10 years, you know, <laughs> a couple give decades. it another opportunity because yeah. you may come away going, wow, this, this is one of the great, I, I put it up there as one of the, still one of the great films of the 21st century still. Like it, it, I don't know where I rank it with everything that's come out, but it, it's, it's high. Yeah. It's high. It's, and it's hard because there's so many good movies that came out there too. Like it's easy to see. I mean, it's easy to see why this got kind of pushed aside and forgotten because it's not a big tentpole movie. It's not lots of action, but there's so much to it. There's so much to it. And I got to say it ends so well, the way they kind of cap this movie is just well done of like peaks your interest, but yet ha like it happy and not and like, like it just does such it's a like, great oh job. Boy, here we go. Yeah, again. Here we, yeah ex exactly. <laughs> like, and you know, like you're just like, Oh, the next one, which there wasn't a next one. So yeah. And if you go on, if you go on Reddit, there's a, there's a good group on Reddit that, that on the kind of the movie critic and movie review 
threads that adores this movie. And they're just still holding out hope that somehow <laughs> they could do a sequel to, cause I know Russell Crowe would do it. Yeah. I know he would. I I'll know he would. I, too. I bet he would. I bet he would. You just, you're not going to get, you're not going to be able to get Peter Weir out of retirement. I don't know no. who you're going to get to direct it. That's of his caliber. Um, Denny maybe, but he's too busy doing Dune. But he, I don't but know. Denny. It'd be cool to see Nolan do something on the water Ooh, like this, but yeah, Nolan, I mean, but, I don't know if it's in his wheelhouse or not, but there, yeah, there isn't. I wish we had a deeper list of modern directors that I thought were like super high caliber, but I, maybe I'm realizing that it was never, a deep list. No, it's always been the, like a, just a handful of people who've been just really great that we, we, we've kind of loved and some have been around for decades and pond decades that keep producing excellent stuff. Yeah. But if folks haven't seen a bunch of stuff by Weir, you know, like I said, it's not like he's got this insanely crazy filmography, but yeah, we mentioned the Truman show. Um, Dead Poets Society. Mm. He did Witness. Good film with Harrison mm -hmm. Ford. Yeah. Um, Gallipoli, The Year of Living da Dangerously. So, you know, his, his best stuff, I think, is probably The Truman Show and this. And, and Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society is fantastic. But oh, yeah. This guy makes grown-up movies. It, you know, it obviously Truman Show's got a comedic element to it, but at the end of the day, it is a... Uh, it's it ends as a pretty much piece of dr drama with with pretty high stakes so good director really good director i don't know if australia has produced a better director than the peter weir yeah. than peter weir yeah no yeah. i don't think so but Again, yeah totally flies just flies under the radar but produces great stuff so well go see this if you haven't or if you haven't seen it for a while give it a second chance I'm proof positive that it does get better with age, with your age, not with the movie's age. Maybe. Yeah, and this but, movie is one that has improved every time I've sat down and watched it. Mm -hmm. And I've probably seen it start to finish probably four or five times, Yeah, I would think. Maybe well, more, it, but... It's improved every time I've watched it a second time, which has been once. So Second yeah. time is better every time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think we're going to wrap this one up. Appreciate everybody Thank watching you everybody. on YouTube. Yeah. And uh, again, if you like the conversation, hit subscribe and the bell. And uh, we appreciate you listening on audio only podcast. And we enjoy discussing movies. We hope you do as well. And uh, thanks for, for tuning in. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>